This is Marianne O'Hotter. And I'm Danielle George. And welcome to This Study Shows. This is a podcast from Wiley Research, and it's all about how your research matters and has to be shared. In this episode, we're going to be exploring what it's like to put yourself out there. Public speaking doesn't come naturally to everyone, but there's always going to be times in a researcher's life when you're in the spotlight, whether that's giving a lecture, communicating with the media, or even just trying to explain your PhD in the pub. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll come away with lots of new ideas for how to engage audiences and to feel confident doing it. Danielle, do you enjoy public speaking? Um, I do. I really do. I get sort of like nervous knots, you know, like a fire in your belly sort of feel to it. And and I get it every time I do it. And that doesn't matter whether I'm public speaking or actually giving a lecture at university as well. And it's like the sort of butterflies because you're never quite sure what people are going to ask, whether that's your students or the public or, you know, once you've finished talking. But I think it's really good. And it, I think it makes me a better communicator because I'm sort of thinking about, you know, what, what the audience are going to, what, what they're going to ask me. And I've always said at work, the day I stop getting that sort of feeling, that sort of butterflies feeling in my stomach, I'll stop lecturing because I won't be a good lecturer. Ooh, gosh. Uh, for those of you who might not know, my eminent co-host, Danielle, uh, <laughs> presented the hugely prestigious Christmas lectures for the Royal Institution here in the UK. And you can check them out online. They're aimed at a family-friendly audience. And so you can sit down with your whole fam and watch Danielle, <laughs> basically giving you a masterclass in science communication. <laughs> I remember the very first uh, presentation I gave, I think it was... Yeah, one, once I'd graduated, and it was to the European Space Agency, so it was it was quite, big quite a big thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I was really nervous, and I thought, right, what should I do? Should I really prepare and go word for word? And I thought, well, no, I'll not do that because if I forget a, like a word, I'll completely go out of sync, and then it won't. So I'll just sort of um, have a think about what I want to say, but then just sort of bluff it on on the day. And and but I was really nervous, and knowing you hold something in your hand. And it could be like a pen and you start clicking it. Or, and I had the, um, the laser pointer in my hand and I kept clicking it. And, um, <laughs> and then the, the, like the big cheese, the big, big cheese who was in the room with us, he stuck his hand up and I thought, oh, great. You know, like the very first question I'm going to get is from like the main person in the room. And, um, and I was like, yes. And he said, um, would you mind stop shining that laser pointer in my eye? Oh. And I was like... Oh. <laughs> I was completely um, sort of ruined me oh, for the rest of the God. day then. So I from literally then on. feel the physical horror on your behalf, however many years later. Oh, so God, yeah, from awful. then on, I was like, right, okay, I'm going to start recording myself. And so, so it's, and it's something that I do if, you know, if you've got to do like a timed talk where you can't really sort of go off piste and, you know, have a bit of a chat about anything. If it's more of a timed like TED talk or something like that, I record myself, but, but I record myself at normal pace. Yeah. And then I record it again in slow motion so that I talk, I speak really, really slowly. Oh. And then, and then I do it again and I do it really, really fast. And that really works for me. 
I don't know if it's going to work for anyone else. I'd be interested to know if it works for anyone else. Yeah, email it us. Really works for this me. study shows at wiley.com or tweet <laughs> us with your super fast talking presentations and, and let us know whether Danielle's secret to success works. There's someone I want to introduce you to, someone who approaches science communication in a way purists might not be used to. I'm Liz Neely. I'm the executive director of the Story Collider. Story Collider is, believe it or not, another science podcast. What? I know, but we'll forgive them because they're great. This is what Story Collider is all about. Story Collider is this idea that true personal stories about science have an incredible power. They have the ability to bring people together to sort of celebrate, to mourn, (laughs) to look at the realities of what it means to live a life in science. And so we do a series of live events, shows. We have five storytellers per show who each stand up and tell a 10-minute personal story. People who are not themselves trained researchers have a lot of personal stories to tell about these spaces. So that's what we do. We put people on stage and then we record all of that and goes to some of those stories go to our weekly podcast. These are not TED Talks, right? There's no props, no slides, no PowerPoint, as much as I love that. It's just a person in front of a microphone sharing something that they've lived through, some way that science has touched their life. So the people telling the stories aren't always scientists themselves, but plenty are. Even then, they're not explaining their research outcomes or even the broader context of their work. They're talking about personal stuff. So there's a space scientist who's trying to launch a research balloon in the desert and her outlook is completely changed when she helps a baby bird that's fallen from its nest. Or there's another one about a man who realises he needs to understand the science of sleep better when his own sleepwalking starts to get dangerous. What I wanted to know from Liz was how do you go from having some interesting sciencey thing that once happened to you to being able to tell a completely true, beautifully compelling 10-minute story with no notes, no script, in your own authentic voice in front of a live audience? Yeah, right. That's the scary thing. It's like you hear the finished product and you're like, oh, how do I get there? Or like, I can't do that. But you can. And so... What we get really excited about is the idea that stories are meaning-making devices. And we know this from the science side as well as from the art side. Storytelling is a way that we reflect on our past experiences and help sort of fit them into who we are and what we're going to do in the future. And so what we often find, we prompt our storytellers to start with something that's on their mind. Is it a story you tell about yourself a lot? Or um, is it just like that kernel of an idea? And then our producers will ask you tons and tons of questions about why did you do that? What were you thinking at that moment? Um, What came next? And it's really, really interesting. Sometimes our storytellers explain that it feels a little bit like therapy. There's a lot of catharsis. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of like reflection and growing because... Most of us don't see our own magnificence or our own strangeness except through other people's eyes. The other thing about storytelling is it's such a buzzword right now. Um, People will just like use it to mean everything. So when we say it, we very specifically sort of mean three things driven by the literature. And this is the idea that for us, a story is a believable character, that's you, going through some sort of 
meaningful event and then coping with the consequences. So that's what we're looking to coach when we try and figure out what story you're going to tell on our stage. So Story Collider isn't just about scientists telling stories. This is about science stories. That's right. Stories that involve science? Yes. So we believe that if you embrace this idea that science, engineering, medicine, technology, right? If all of those things are shaping the lives of literally everyone on this planet, that means every person has true personal science stories to tell. And so this is what Story Collider does that's a little bit subversive, is we're not only elevating researchers, you know, PhDs, engineers, and things like that on our stage, but also patients and parents and comedians and, you know, bartenders. This sort of collective experience of what science means and does and the impact of it on our lives, I think makes it a much richer and deeper conversation. But, and, you know, to play devil's advocate here, Surely when someone is standing there and saying, I have the data, I have the conclusion or the, the evidence base that means that this ought to happen or this is the the more accurate understanding of this phenomena that is affecting us all, I can totally understand why, why some researchers have their heads in their hands and going, I don't want to turn this into a story. Yeah. I just want to tell you because I know this is the answer. Yeah. So shut up and listen. This isn't story time. This is listening time. Yeah. And then doing, doing as I say time. I, I, you know what? I completely started in that same place. And the only thing that changed my mind, ironically, is data. I, I sat in a place of thinking about science faces a world that is not only just flooded in information, but also awash in misinformation. We are necessarily competing for attention. We have to earn it. And we are outgunned, I think. <laughs> like There are plenty of other people who have much less of a requirement to hew to the truth There are people who are extremely well-funded. There are very attractive people who are well-spoken, the rhetoric, all the rest of it. What do we have? Well, we actually have research about how do people make sense of the world? How do you change hearts and minds if they already are skeptical of you or if it is a politicized topic? That science, the science of science communication, was really important to me. And for those of us who are trained in hard sciences, like my background is marine biology, it is difficult to make the transition to reading social science papers and to appreciating those methods and those approaches. But if you start to take very seriously the both theoretical and empirical work in the disciplines entirely dedicated to understanding human beings and communication, um, Then for me, that started to shift things. I started to appreciate why, for example, the emotional content of stories is more than just a ploy for attention. If you want people to connect, if you want them to care, and especially if you want them to appreciate the process of science rather than only the products, we need to be able to tell that in a more narrative format. You've convinced me. (laughs) (laughs) It's easier to convince you. I feel like I have spent the past five years standing in front of groups of 
researchers across all career stages. And I appreciate that, like, life is hard. We have manuscripts to write. We have grants to write. We have students to mentor, classes to teach. The pressures on faculty, researchers, scientists of all stripes is so high. I also just feel like this is our moment. This is our moment to step up. Danielle, did you spot Liz's storytelling uh, skills there? She paints herself as a believable character with this meaningful event of realizing the importance of this kind of communication. And then she discovers the consequences by establishing Story Collider. She tells a story about herself, basically, that means that the creation of Story Collider becomes a compelling tale rather than just a bunch of information. Yeah, she's very good at it. Yes, she is. She is. (laughs) Uh, The final thing to share was a tip from Liz about how to structure your stories once you've worked out the interesting thing that you want to say. One of the tricks that is in our toolkit is something called um, dramatic mode. So it's the difference between one of my favorite clips um, from Dr. David Evans. He talks about he's in the field, he's hot, sweaty, complete waste of a couple of days, no success. He's frustrated to the point where he's just picking up rocks and throwing them. And then he says, and I picked up a rock and before I chucked it, I looked at it. And it's a good thing I did because I was holding in my hand a perfectly preserved dinosaur egg. (laughs) And so (laughs) that is so powerful. And it's so much better than saying, the day we found the dinosaur nest, we had been frustrated and hot in the field and about to give up, but we were successful and ultimately the find was very important to our research. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a shift that we go in this like storytelling mode. Dramatic mode is also very powerful. Storytelling is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, Danielle. Did Liz Neely convince you it was worth taking seriously? Oh, definitely. I think it's definitely worth taking seriously. I love the way she structures the stories and and the great examples um, from Story Collider and the way they structure it. But I'm not quite sure if it has to be true or not. You know, if if it's not true, does it detract? So if you just take um, the, the one that Liz was just talking about there, about David Evans, you know, this was an amazing story. He picks up the dinosaur egg. And that was a sort of eureka moment, the inspirational moment that that made him persevere. If that bit wasn't true, would it detract from the story? Oh, interesting. I think it has to be believable. I think it has to have a truth in it that reflects something about the person's emotional state and the consequences and their motivations. So you can't just... I think if you're kind of trying to work out how to make some tedious piece of research that took you nine long years to work out and you had iteration after iteration of failure, it kind of it kind of works if you can find a way of telling a story that genuinely explores why you carried on doing it and why didn't mm. you go, I'm just going to get a job as an accountant because this is doing my head in. So so maybe you didn't have that moment where the sunlight shone through the, the window of your lab and you suddenly realised that it refracting through a something, something, something made you realise the truth about whatever. 
But you kind of just need to find a way to help people get into your emotional state so then you can take them on the story journey with you. Mm. And I think that's the really important part, isn't it? That sort of keep keep the emotion in that because people can then relate to the story a lot more. And if you tell that story well, you're t- telling your science well. Yeah, exactly. And it, it transforms scientists from this kind of abstract concept into people like me who are motivated by love, by passion, by a frustrated sense of failure, whatever it is, <laughs> that, you know, they are us as well. Yeah, Absolutely. I'd like to introduce you to our next guest. I'm Kat Curlin. I work at the University of California in Davis. I'm a press officer and a science writer focused on environmental sciences. And I work with our researchers to help get their science out into the world. Um, I connect them with journalists, journalists with them, the public in general, um, just so more people understand the great work they're doing. From the sounds of it, Kat's pretty good at her job too. One uh, recent story that we did that did quite well, um, that was kind of this mixture of devastating and fun all at the same time, was this one about um, a researcher had a study coming out that really showed how our kelp forests in California have been devastated, like Mm. 90% gone due to this combination of um, warming waters, um, a decline of sea stars that were creating this urchin explosion that was just devastating the kelp forest. They were just mm. eating them up. Um, but it had this other kind of fun sort of solution element of urchin ranching that the lab there was doing where they were taking these urchins from the seafloor and bringing them into the lab, fattening them up for market. And we were partnering with a, a seafood company to kind of get those out there. So this researcher um, had the study coming out. She wanted the world to know about this really awful problem. Mm. So she and I worked together. Um, she called me up, basically said, hey, here's the gist. Can you help? I made a draft news release. We compiled a lot of great images. I pitched it to media. We put it out as a press release. Um, there were some video footage that went with that. And that piece was covered in about 700 news outlets across the world. Wow. So doesn't happen all the time, but that it does happen. So what would you say to people, you know, there are lots of researchers who, who don't really want to get into the sort of the science communication side because they're worried that their message or their science will be misunderstood in the public. Yeah, that, that is definitely a concern I've heard. Um, I think the best thing you can do, it sounds simple, is is to prepare, is to is to message, figure out what your message is. And there's tools around to help you do that. Um, and I think if the, the more that you can hone your message, the less likely it will be misinterpreted. And I think um, particularly with people who deal with controversial issues, um, I think it's better to, to have you, you get your message out there first and then I think the blowback from that is much less than if someone sort of finds out and runs with it. Instead of saying, let's just not talk about it. Let's hope nobody notices. I think it's better to go, okay, let's think about all the things people might ask us about and come up with some good talking points for that and how we're going to handle that. Yeah, Um, that's really nice because it puts puts a scientist on the front foot then, doesn't it? It puts them more in control of of their own message rather than reacting. Exactly. 
Do you have sort of a, a checklist then for a, a researcher? You know, so someone comes to you and, you know, you're like, right, okay, what you need to do to get your story, you need to get a Twitter account, you need to start making some videos, you need to, you know, is there a sort of a, a basic checklist that you would go through with a scientist? Um, not quite so much. It's sort of my own checklist. I kind of work with what we've got and it always depends on how much time advance notice we have on something. Mm. Sometimes, like I just heard about a study that came out coming out you know, today, <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> so I wrote that this morning. And, um, but I think for researchers, the checklist for them would maybe be, what is my main message? Why should anyone care? Who can I help get this out for me? If, if you're at an institution, you likely do have somebody like me, hopefully that's a press officer you can work with to do this. Um, all along the way with your research, if you can be compiling images or thinking about a good graphic or taking a video, that's all stuff that can be used later when it is time to promote your work. Um, and then don't, don't be afraid to, you know, practice your interview with your press officer or a friend. The practicing the message is really important. And that goes for like young junior faculty to some of the most seasoned faculty we have. Is there an age profile with um, with how good scientists communicate? I have seen it across the board. I've seen really seasoned researchers um, just not be able to answer a question or make absolutely no sense to me, or they're just really kind of off the cuff and like they're not thinking about it. And and it's that has surprised me at times where I thought, you kind of need communications training, but you're too far along <laughs> to think that you do. Um, and then I've seen the like, grad students completely nail it and really impress me. And then I've seen the total reverse of that. I think the difference really is um, in these grad students that I'm thinking of that have really knocked it out of the ballpark, they've had mentors who have really helped encourage science communication. Um, there's a woman in our UC Davis Bodega Marine Laboratory named Tessa Hill, and she's one of my heroes. And one of the things she's done is any student pretty much who goes through her lab or takes her classes comes out of there knowing how to describe what they're studying and why it matters. I think that ability to cultivate a culture of science communication is really important at any level of, of your career. And Brilliant. it doesn't, it's not just about media, you know, getting media coverage. Like if you can communicate, they can take that for their, to talk to job prospects, to talk to donor prospects, mm. for policymakers. If you can talk to the media, I think you can talk to anybody. I've, I've used messaging, the messaging tools that I teach for faculty, I've used on my husband. I've used on coworkers. <laughs> like, it's just like, okay, what do I want to say? And why is this important? <laughs> okay, this. Brilliant. Yeah. The thing that really stuck out for me and what Kat was saying, Danielle, is mm. that this idea of cultivating a culture of science communication, the idea that everybody in a lab, in a research group, in a department needs to be on board with the idea that this is important, that we need to invest in it and that we should celebrate people who are up for doing it and nurture everybody to reach that place where people are going, yeah, I'll do that press interview. Yeah, I'll write that up for a blog. Yes, let's take some photos of this research as it's going on because that's the kind of thing that people can engage with outside of the, the research environment. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got to make it a positive part of that research culture that you have in your lab or your, your research group. And it makes such a difference. I think it'll make such a difference if it's the senior people who are trying to drive that as well. Um, yeah, because they basically give permission to early stage career um, researchers and academics to think that that is a thing that they should be and want to do. Yeah. Otherwise, say, there's that tall poppy syndrome where you kind of don't necessarily want to, you know, look like you're the egotist where actually it's more about <laughs> you than it is about your work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, have you had, um, have you ever had any kind of comical or, or brilliant examples, experiences of, of working with the media? Um, I suppose, I suppose the most comical one in a way was, um, so, you know, I gave the Christmas lectures um, for the Royal Institution, which was just amazing, like an amazing experience. And, and really my, my introduction into science communication in a, in a sort of bigger way. Um, but I nearly didn't do it really because the Royal Institution had, had got in touch. They sent me an email and I deleted the email when I got it. Why? Cause, well, because I was sort of like, well, because the Royal Institution Christmas lectures are like, they're quintessentially Christmas, aren't they? You know, like so many people in the UK um, will watch these lectures and, you know, would I like to do them? Yeah, of course I would. Would I like a million pound in my bank account? Yeah, of course I would. Delete. So, so, I, just, <laughs> so I just deleted it. <laughs> Thankfully, they got back in touch a couple of weeks later. <laughs> oh God, why haven't you replied to us, Professor? Yeah, they were literally like, oh, we sent you a, an email a couple of weeks ago. I was like, oh yeah, you did, sorry. I, I deleted it. I thought it was a, you know, just a junk email. They're like, no, no, we would really like you to think about, you know, what you do on the Christmas lectures. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, on behalf of the nation, I'm glad you didn't delete that second email. <laughs> Both Liz and Kat do what they do as a profession. Science communication is part of how they make their living. But we thought it would be helpful to talk to a student who's balancing improving her public speaking and science communication whilst also doing her PhD. Because let's be honest, that might be what a lot of you listening are going through. So this is Irene Robles-Raboyo. She's a PhD student in quantitative biology at Imperial College London. She's really enthusiastic and keen to get out there and communicate her research. Not only that, she's doing it in her second language, which she admits was tricky to start off with. So I'm Spanish. So when I first moved into the UK, uh, language was a tough barrier. In fact, it took me almost a year to start to do science communication uh, from the moment I started my PhD, even though I was uh, motivated. But I even thought about blogging, which is something I did. But then my, my English is, is just not fantastic. However, um, Soon I was aware that maybe I was not very good at English, but I was expressive. So maybe <laughs> talking was uh, talking in front of an audience was uh, a bit better, mm, which maybe wasn't the truth at the beginning. But then with a bit of experience, uh, you you improve. Uh, I would say that I do science communication. I do speak in public more often than a regular PhD student. Because there are always PhD students that hate speaking in public and there are PhD students that love to do it. 
Uh, so as a PhD student who came into your work knowing that you quite liked talking in public, what advice would you have for people who are PhD students who are kind of going, oh, I've got this pressure that I ought to be communicating my research, I want to be better at making those networks. What should they be doing? I think the best way is to put you up front, accepting that... Uh, the first steps are going to be tough, that a presentation doesn't need to be perfect. What is important is just to notice what happened during the presentation, what went well, what could it be improved. But the best way to improve with these things is, is just to be brave and put yourself small, small challenges. I mean, that is pretty brave because not only are you exposing yourself because you're having to present your original work, but you're also putting yourself in the spotlight. I know that a lot of scientists really find that quite difficult because, I mean, they default to the to the rationale. They say, oh, well, you know, it's not really about me. It's about the research. I don't want to be up on stage, you know, having people stare at me. I mean, me particularly, I like the adrenaline uh, shock and I always like storytelling. But it is important. So one thing is to do your research. Another thing is communicating it. But one thing cannot happen without the other. So you should, you have to communicate your research because the reason why you are doing your research is in order to provide uh, information for the public. So even if you don't like it, you need to do it it is important to do it well because at the end your work, your funding is going to depend on it. So you have to do it. And if you like it, better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you like it, even better. If you don't like it, suck it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Together with a group of other PhDs, Irene runs a monthly night called Pub HD. Most members of the public don't get to hear about researchers' work and many students don't get to hear from people outside their own field of study. So these are super informal get-togethers in a pub where PhDs talk about the work, everybody has a drink and then asks questions. It's a great way to hear about cutting-edge science, great for scientists to talk about their work in a low-stakes way but as you can imagine, it's not always easy to convince people to stand up in a pub and talk about their science. It sounds, however, like Irene is very persuasive. I've been organising uh, PubHD for the last uh, two years now. Seems incredible. <laughs> so we had a lot of speakers. So um, my main job there was to convince speakers to speak. <laughs> so main, mainly, mainly, so people that come to PubHD are subjected to be asked to be speakers. So often <laughs> we get a speaker and then we get a friend of the speaker and we go that way. Mm. I even made friends because I was trying to convince them to speak at the event. <laughs> and they end up being like really good friends, so I can't complain. And... Um, Fantastic. Irene, we've had this whole conversation. You're conducting your PhD. You run a science communication night in your second language because you're Spanish, Spanish. and English. <laughs> I, 
I'm I'm full of admiration for you because there are so many scientists and researchers out there who just say I don't want to do public speaking. I'm I just it's it's too difficult. It's too scary. It's too much time consuming. And there you are doing it in your second language. I mean that is impressive. But uh, I don't know. I mean I like it, so it's not that hard for me. <laughs> I think. Uh, it's much more respectful when you don't like it and you do it and you do it well. I like it. I do it sometimes successfully. Sometimes I had uh, not very bad talks, but I'm very aware of when I give a good speech and when the speech is just acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Irene robles Raboyo, hopefully convincing you to give public speaking a go, even if you don't feel like it. Oh, I loved hearing about her journey and her message as well. She's super enthusiastic, isn't she? Uh, yeah, and that idea that, well, I like doing it, so that's fine. But if you don't like doing it, you have to do it anyway. Suck it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's really good. Because I think sometimes you can go, oh, well, maybe it's not for you. Oh, okay, well, don't do it. But actually, it's great. Like I, I think, you know, my PhD students will, will appreciate that peer sort of mentoring as well. So from another PhD student, hearing that to say, right, you may be way out of your comfort zone here, but just do it, please, because it's really good for your research. What is it that really stands out from this episode then for you, Marianne? Two things, I think. One, that communicating is not an option. It's a necessity. Mm. And two... It feels tricky, even for the people who like doing it, it's difficult. You're only ever good at what you do a lot of. So if you're nervous, practice. If you're not nervous, practice. And Mm. you will get good. And that in itself will be a a role model and a demonstration to other scientists that they can do it too. Yeah, definitely. And that sort of storytelling structuring that that we heard a lot about as well. And the, the narrative is really important. So it isn't just about you know, facts and figures. It's about, you know, tell a story around the facts and figures and it'll be much more accessible. Okay, so as someone working more on the media side than on primary research, honestly, please take good photographs, take behind the scenes photos, Mm. take little videos on your phone if something cool happens and just capture that moment because that's the stuff that is really exciting for us to be able to share to a wider audience. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Boom. Thank you so much for listening to This Study Shows. If you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. We'd love to hear from you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This Study Shows is a Listen Entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Marianne O'Hotter and me, Danielle George. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter, and the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.